I'm quite ambitious, like I'll go for it and do as much work as possible, I will always give 100%. I think that's the first time in my life where I've ever just turned around and been like, probably not worth it if it's all just going to come crumbling away, um, whether it goes to court or not, like if, if, well, whether it, I get convicted of it or not, if it even gets to court, I've lost everything. Hey, this is Unjust and I'm Callum McRae. In this podcast, we look at the ingredients and components that make up the strange, complex and shameful world of miscarriages of justice. It wasn't until late into my law degree that I discovered these stories weren't exclusive to America, as the array of documentaries available would have you believe. In fact, miscarriages seem to be thriving here within the British criminal justice system and with over 82,000 prisoners in England and Wales, even a conservative estimate as to the percentage of that number who are innocent would represent a significant figure. Now, in this first episode, we'll explore what happens when information vital to a case is withheld by police or prosecutors. The failure to disclose information is the most common cause of miscarriages of justice, and surveys last year suggest lawyers deal with these issues daily. But before we get into that, I called somebody who's been at the sharp end of injustice for 30 years to help me understand better the complexities and anguish involved in a wrongful conviction. Chapter 1. Behind Bars Hello? Hello Mike, can you hear me? Yeah, I had a lot of problems sorting this out, I tell you. Yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it drives me nuts, it does. That's Michael O'Brien, one of the so-called Cardiff News Agent 3. I was shocked when I first heard about his case. Well, the, the day I was arrested was the 1st of November, uh, 1987, and I can remember the police smashing down the door and basically saying to us, you know, going to each and every one of us, are you so-and-so, so-and-so? And we said yes, and they come to me, you, Michael O'Brien, I said yes. They said, well, they're arresting me for the murder of Philip Saunders. It was then we were conveyed to Canton Police Station uh, in Cardiff, where we were interviewed um, for long periods of time without solicitors present, without food and water, and we were handcuffed to hot radiators during our first arrest. They were they were adamant that they were going to get us, and I was terrified, absolutely terrified, you know what I mean? I, I just knew that they weren't going to leave us alone, you know? But I couldn't tell them anything I, I, I didn't know. You know, if my co-accused had done it, you know what I mean? I would be the first to say, well, yeah, they did do it, you know what I mean? But mm. I know they and I couldn't tell them things. They wanted me to confess the things that I knew was, were not true, and I, and I wasn't prepared to do that. On that night, Mike was out trying to steal a car, but he was nowhere near the scene of Philip Saunders' murder. Now, um, the evidence they had it consisted of my co-accused who gave a number of statements saying he did it, and then uh, the last statement he gave was basically accusing us of doing the murder while he was the lookout. I think this is about his tenth statement he, uh, he gave. Well, the confession of Darren Halls is quite unique, you know, in the sense like, you know, um, we didn't know at the time that Darren Hall had confessed to a crime he hadn't done before, but that wasn't disclosed to us at that stage. That didn't come out until um, near enough 11 years later. 
where his solicitor at trial gave evidence at the Court of Appeal for us and said he couldn't have committed these crimes because he was in my office at the particular time. And uh, the judge at the time said to Darren Hall, you want to start living in the real world uh, and called him a multi-mitted character where he, he, he uh, you know, he was a fantasizer, you know what I mean? And things like this. But the, the prosecution did not disclose this to our defence and the jury didn't get to hear that kind of evidence. Other evidence came from one of the investigating officers, Stuart Lewis. Well, it was a, a police officer who, was, who, who alleged on the second arrest he was outside the cells with a pen and paper and he heard me and Ellis Sherwood confessing to the crime in the cells and it went something like this. I was supposed to have said, why don't you tell him the truth, Ellis? And he was supposed to reply, being on remand means nothing. Tell him nothing. And uh, it was a conversation along them lines, very incriminating, yet that conversation did not take place. Now, unbeknown to me, this police officer had made up confessions like this outside the cells on numerous other occasions, but it was to be 11 years before all that came out. But you can imagine, had the jury known about Darren Hall and this police officer making up these confessions, this case wouldn't have gone anywhere. And the police and prosecution knew that evidence from the start? Absolutely. I mean, they knew about Stuart Lewis. Um, I'll give an example. When I first come out, I bumped into uh, a barrister in the, in the pub and they said the police, the CPS, the, the, the lawyers, they all knew about Stuart Lewis. Everybody knew him. And I said, why are you telling me now? Why didn't you come forward all these years ago? And I got very angry, you know, and I felt really bitter to, to know that the people in the system knew what, they were, what he was doing and yet wouldn't challenge him. You know, that, that really sent me into despair. Hmm. Why didn't they do anything about it? I'm never, I'm never probably going to get that answer. Well, they, we were in front of the courts uh, on, on the 10th of November, 1987. And we were remanded in custody, you know, and I was absolutely petrified. Didn't I've never been to prison before. I'd never been arrested before. So I just didn't know what to expect, you know. And some of, some of the police officers was like saying, oh, they'll bend you over in there and they'll shag you and stuff like this. I mean, really personal stuff. And you can imagine, I was only 19. I was only six stone six when I went into prison. I was a really small person and I was terrified, absolutely terrified. With that evidence, it was little wonder the jury convicted Michael O'Brien of the murder of Philip Saunders, alongside his co-defendants Darren Hall and Ellis Sherwood. He was sentenced to life where he'd serve a minimum of 14 years. Chapter 2. The Disc Mike mentioned there that there was key evidence that the police and prosecution knew about but did not tell his defence. Now, this case is 30 years old, but if you've been following the news lately, you'd have noticed this problem's hardly improved. Yes, my name is Julia Smart. I'm a barrister at Furnival Chambers, and I solely practice in criminal defence. So, what is disclosure? Well, perhaps I'll have to start maybe with the investigation. So, the, a crime is reported to the police. Um, there is an officer um, assigned to the case, and that person is supposed to then investigate, um, looking at all leads which point towards the suspect and away from the suspect. And then there will be evidence that the police will use <clears throat> as part of their case 
in order, they will say, to prove the guilt of the suspect. But there'll be all sorts of other material, witness statements, uh, maybe recordings, material on mobile telephones that they're not using, but they have still examined within their investigation. Um, all of those items have to be recorded on a schedule so that as we go through the process towards a court case, we know what they've found. That schedule is called the Schedule of Unused Material, the MG6C. And they have to assess whether the other things they found might undermine their own case or help ours. That is the key test. And if that is the position, then they must disclose them to us. Last year, Julia represented Liam Allen, at the time a 22-year-old criminal psychology and criminology student. His story illustrates what can happen when that vital evidence isn't disclosed. Originally, I wanted to be part of the system um, when I joined uni. You know, I was like, yeah, like, this would be wicked. I could be a detective and do all the fun things, you know. Um, and then you're like, oh, maybe not. Um, <laughs> I don't think I want to be part of a culture that does that to people. Liam was arrested by police at his mother's house and described to me a scene of chaos. He's in his dressing gown when they come in and he's kept in the dark as to what's going on. And it's really hard because if you don't know what's going on, you can't calm your mum down. And then, but you know you can't react to it or get panicked because your mum will get panicked as well. Um, and so it's, it was terrifying. I asked if I could get changed because um, I wasn't really decent to <laughs> go down to a police station. Um, and the first thing they shouted out was, you know, is, like, is there a window that you can jump through? And me and my mum just sort of, that was it, that was when we knew. We started to figure then it wasn't for questioning, it was actually, you, like, you're being arrested, something's gone, like, got, like, happened. Once he's in the police car, Liam is told that following allegations made by an ex-girlfriend, he was being arrested under suspicion of committing multiple counts of rape. They drive Liam to the police station where, in his interview, it quickly becomes clear that his situation is not necessarily going to be easily resolved. Yeah, it was really odd, like the way that questions get asked. It's not necessarily to lead you into a trap, but you always panic that they're asking those to try and slip you up a little bit. Um, so if you say the wrong thing, um, I think I hesitated for like 10 seconds at one point. And the first thing they turned around was like, why did you hesitate? And you're just sort of like, because this is completely out of the blue for me. Like, you have to understand you're asking me about something across two years and then expecting me to just sort of know it all, um, information off the back of my hand. And so, yeah, it's, it's difficult to like, look back on things and know every detail exactly. But then if you don't, you're considered like you're lying. As soon as you walk in there, as much as they say, like, you're innocent until proven guilty, you're, you're not. Like you're guilty until you can prove yourself, that's it. Liam waited over a year before the police made a decision whether to charge him or not and got the impression of an investigation in disarray. So a couple of us went down to the police station in July, which is when we, I was supposed to find out whether or not I was being charged or no further action. The police officer in charge didn't turn up. Uh, so we waited for two and a half hours, to possibly three, trying to find out where he is, wasn't answering his phone. Eventually they just turned around and was like, yeah, look, we're just going to rebel you. Um, we can't find the police officer in charge. I don't know what's going on. Ultimately, and after walking out of one of his criminology lectures, Liam got a phone call explaining that he was going to be charged. It's quite difficult because you're 
There's a possibility of input in remand. That is a possibility. Um, the fact I was on bail made it unlikely, but we went through, like I think when, when I got charged, there was a point where you had to say goodbye because, you know, like the, the police officers were just turn around like, there's a chance he might not come back out. If the jury said, you know, guilty, then you're not coming back. So, two years after he was first arrested, the case arrives at Croydon Crown Court, where his fate was now in the hands of 12 people who know only the Liam Allen that was accused of raping his ex-girlfriend. And in everybody's head, it's like, okay, the jury is 50-50. The not 50-50. It's all first impressions. I can promise you now, it's all first impressions. The second I walked into that courtroom, three people already made up their mind. Liam Allen was to become a household name and the unwanted face of a crisis. Um, we made inquiries of the police. We asked for any text messages or emails between him and the complainant, um, any other social um, materials had been looked at, and we were told in terms that there was nothing that would assist our case. These requests were made on numerous occasions throughout that year. And it was only just before trial when the prosecution um, revealed that it was relying on one short chain of messages that alerted me to the fact that somewhere there must have been a download. Um, that download was not listed on the unused material schedule, so we didn't even know it had been done until we were actually at trial. A lot of it was just confusion um, when, you know, in the courtroom. I think on the first day we, we saw that they were including the texts. Those texts in our head, they must have been the only ones then. Um, that they could find. That was what we were under the assumption of. That was kind of what we were, how it was communicated to us. Um, I made a request then of the disk of download. I was told again in terms that it had been reviewed and it was not disclosable to us. You know, it's just casually spoken about in court like it didn't matter. Um, and it's just sort of like, well, we have a disk. And then you're just sort of like, right, with how much? Um, and it's agonising because you know, you're, there's constant stumbling blocks to try and get over to get to that disc. And it's sort of like, oh, why weren't we given that disc? Oh, too personal, I think, you know. That may be evidence that proves his innocence, and they had to fight tooth and nail to even see it. Eventually, after a new prosecuting barrister was assigned to the case, they were allowed to see that material. In the event, I was given the disc of the download overnight to look at, um, staying up for many hours. Um, and it was about three or four o'clock in the morning when I started to come across uh, enough messages um, to lead me to believe that that disc had never properly been reviewed. Or if it had, there was something very seriously wrong with the system. We were told initially in court 2,000, I think a couple of thousand messages, if that. Um, turns out there was, I will never ever forget this number, 2,418 pages of text messages and there was 30 per page um, and so when you do the maths on it yeah it's about 60 odd thousand um, plus um, and it's just insane that somebody could just be like mm, yeah well you know they're not really relevant or they're too personal to read a rape case is very personal um, any case where you're being accused of something is personal so nothing should be regarded as too personal if somebody is worried about you finding something out that sort of, you know, 
information that doesn't need to go out somewhere unless it disproves what you're saying. So there should be no, there should be a little bit of confidence on both ends for both victim and suspect that if those messages are too personal, then they're not going to be leaked. Like the irrelevant information isn't going to be leaked. But if it's personal and it's relevant to the case, yes, it, it needs to come out. You can't hide that. Those messages between the complainant and Liam and between the complainant and her friends revealed a picture that was completely at odds with the initial allegation. This material was looked at properly um, by the uh, prosecution barrister um, with the assistance, I believe, of the CPS and the officer, and it was decided there was no longer any realistic prospect of a conviction. Uh, we returned to court and Liam Allen was uh, found not guilty uh, when the prosecution offered no evidence, as it's known. Uh, and that was the end of the ordeal for him, but he'd been on bail for the best part of two years. He went through two years of hell. This, this goes through line managers and all sorts. And this was the bigger issue. I don't know if you've read the review that came out, um, which might be worth um, having a look at if you haven't had a chance yet. It actually states that the officer in charge does not document how he analysed the information, doesn't document why he took certain bits of the information, but they have every faith that, you know, it wasn't done maliciously against me. How can you have every faith if you don't know how he's done it? Like, that doesn't make sense. You're just going on gut feeling of, okay, yeah, he did it. That's not facts, that's... Like, you know, you supporting an individual that's part of your culture, not somebody that could have possibly hidden that just to, you know, send me down. This is the thing. This is what I believe genuinely happened. I don't think they bothered properly reading it. I don't think that anybody actually picked it up and saw 60,000 messages and went, yeah, sure, I've got the time to do this. I think they all just pushed it aside and went... Let's just run the risk that there's nothing in there. Let's just say it's too personal so nobody ever gets to read it. And if there was something in there that could have supported us, we'll also run the risk that there was something in there that could have you know, gone against us. If I had taken the word of, in this case, the officer via the prosecution barrister, that there was nothing on that disc, it was described as just being some girly chat um, of no significance, I would potentially have had a quick look through it and and gone to bed at a reasonable hour and I would then be cross-examining that complainant the following morning without deploying any of this material at all and um, the jury may well have found her a credible witness. Um, she wasn't obviously lying when she gave her evidence, certainly not to me. It, it's all down then to 12 people selected at random uh, and I am extremely uncomfortable to be in the position where um, I feel as a Defence Barrister, I'm effectively the last gatekeeper for preventing a miscarriage of justice because these um, sorts of checks and balances should operate all the way through the system. You can't put everything down to the goodwill and professionalism of uh, lawyers dealing with, with cases. Because at some point, um, a case like Liam Allen is, is going to slip through any safety net that we have uh, and that young man would have been sitting in prison um, for a very long time. Um, with a stigma that would uh, be with him for the rest of his life. Chapter 3, A National Epidemic. 
Don't be mistaken, Liam Allen's case is not a one-off. Just after his came the collapsed cases of Isaac Ittieri, Oliver Mears and Sanson McKell, to name just three. A review into 600 rape and serious sexual offences cases nationally was sparked. Just recently, Anthony Brack's case uh, collapsed on the first day of trial where CCTV and medical evidence available from the start proved he was not guilty of an acid attack. He was facing 16 years in jail and had already spent six months behind bars. There was Petruta Christina Bosowanka, who spent 13 months in custody under suspicion of people trafficking. She gave birth in custody, all to find out crucial evidence proving her innocence had failed to be disclosed. Oh, certainly not. It wasn't even a, a one-off within a, a fortnight for me. Um, uh, the other side of Christmas, um, I represented a, a defendant called uh, Clive Steer. Um, not a sexual case, he was a, a, a businessman from Guildford who ran a printing business. He was accused of bribing um, a company that he was doing work for. His case was he got the work because he was the most competitive um, and that all the police needed to do was to examine the emails between himself and this company and they would find what the true position was. Um, he handed over his computer um, before he was interviewed. He spent some hours in interview telling the officer exactly um, the people that he had communicated with by email and what the officer would see within the emails. He gave them the passwords. Uh, he handed over his computer and he naively thought that the officer would investigate that computer and those um, emails with the company uh, and would find that material and that would be a, a swift end of it. Um, it wasn't. That computer was sent away. Uh, a download was taken from it. Um, it's rather difficult to see what sort of investigation took place because uh, the officer uh, decided next to the entry on the unused schedule concerning this particular download of Clive Steer's computer. It did not assist um, our case, it did not undermine their case. The case went to trial again. This time the defence fortunately got a court order to have that laptop returned. And over the course of a, a few hours um, between myself and, and Clive Steer, we had a schedule which had all of those emails which proved exactly what he said would be on there. That schedule was served on the prosecution and similarly to Liam's case, already at trial the prosecution offered no evidence and Clive was exonerated. Uh, and again, um, it had a, a very bad effect upon um, his own family life, personal life. Um, one of his businesses failed. Um, it still long-lasting effects uh, of not knowing whether he was going to go to prison, which I suppose he would have got probably about three years or so, but not whether he would go to prison for a, a period of time. He had very uh, young children. In fact, his youngest was born whilst he was on bail. Um, there are no winners in all of this. Um, it, it can't be in any way advantageous to have um, innocent people being pursued in this way when the material exists that, that would exonerate them. How can such clear evidence be missed? I think it's, um, it's sometimes it's called unconscious bias. Um, it may be uh, actual bias. But if your day-to-day, -day, let's suppose as a police officer, um, is working for the rape and serious sexual um, uh, offences uh, units, um, you are trying to um, build a case uh, because you have an individual who should be called the complainant but is commonly called in police parlance the victim and there's a real danger that if you see someone as a victim then you want to achieve
justice and therefore there must be a perpetrator. Now in some of these cases there is uh, and there is, a, um, there is a guilty person out there and you're building a case against them. Um, I think it becomes um, all too polarised within the system that we have that those um, who's, who work within um, this sort of field feel that they have to build a case because if they're not building a case then they're not achieving justice for that victim as they see it um, and it's very difficult to take a step back and think that actually their role is to be an objective investigator. Now back in January 2018 the director of public prosecutions, the person in charge of the CPS, confidently claimed that she did not believe there were innocent people in prison owing to these disclosure failures. Lord Macdonald, the former DPP, disagreed. He said, quote, It's quite inevitable that there are some innocent people in prison today because of disclosure failures. He went on to say that that number could be in the thousands. Look, the fact that we have had so many cases that have been near misses um, would lead me to be quite sure that there are cases where this sort of material um, wasn't revealed at all and was never revealed. Um, and there will be people, I'm quite sure, um, who will be sitting, serving out their sentences. Um, I mean, I know they, I mean, they, they write to me, um, showing what, what has gone wrong in their case. It is so much more difficult to deal with these sort of cases after the event. Um, the trial process is such that if you've gone through a trial and 12 people have been sure of your guilt, um, it really is, you know, it's like pushing an elephant up the stairs when you, um, after the event, trying to find fresh evidence um, which casts doubt on that verdict. I'm Maya Chopra. I'm a self-employed criminal barrister at Farringdon Chambers. What's happening in the Crown Courts, broadly speaking, is that everyone's appearing to have complied with disclosure. Um, there's at least this facade of having complied with disclosure, and it's only later when people make these investigations that they realise that actually something's been overlooked um, through malice or incompetence. Um, and that is what the crisis is in the Crown Court. In the Magistrates' Courts, I'm sure that's happening, but it's so much more than that because there isn't even a consensus on what the law is, what the obligations should be, um, and what procedure should be followed it's probably not even good enough to get to the crisis level because in order for it to be crisis level, you have to accept that certain obligations are in play. Maya represents clients at both the Crown Court and the Magistrates. For most people, any contact with the criminal justice system will be made at Magistrates level. The uh, Magistrates Court is the lowest criminal court. Every single criminal case, no matter how big, no matter how small, starts in the Magistrates' Court. There are three types of criminal offence. There are summary-only offences. Those can only be heard in the Magistrates' Court. There are indictable-only offences. 
um, those can only be heard in the Crown Court. And then there are either way offences. So those could be heard in either the Magistrates Court or the Crown Court. The name of the game here, it seems, is speed. What seems to be the overriding objective in the Magistrates Court is just for the cases to, to get on. And, and I understand that because it's summary justice. It's meant to be speedier and cheaper than a Crown Court trial, but it still is a criminal trial. We all have a really difficult time, um, but for very different reasons. So when I'm doing a trial in the Magistrates Court, it's likely to be the only case that I'm doing that day. And what's difficult for me is dealing with all the disclosure arguments, dealing with a client who's stressed about the fact that they're on trial when they don't think they should be, and they might be convicted and they might go to prison. Um, sometimes they'll have family members with them who are just as anxious. That is very demanding. What a prosecution advocate will have is um, a stack of trials, sometimes three, three for the morning, three for the afternoon. So they, more often than not, will only really get to look at the material that morning. And they'll look at the morning trials in the morning and then look at the afternoon trials at lunchtime. It sounds like they're overworked. Totally, totally. Um, because the thing is, sometimes, you know, we'll spend a morning, you know, scrapping over disclosure and then you have a trial. Um, but from my point of view, once it's over, I can walk through that door. Whereas for that prosecutor, they'll turn to their next trial. And the disclosure of unused material seems to be the first thing to suffer. A lot of times I've been given a letter in lieu of a schedule saying there's no material. And I'll look through the case summary and say, well, hang on, there has to be more material because you've listed other witness statements that you have. So what you're giving me cannot be right. This isn't proper compliance. Um, but of course, if you're on the day of trial, then everyone just wants to get on with it. And that means if and when there is eventual disclosure, it comes simply too late and defence lawyers are often left unprepared. You're not at your best. The way that you conduct a trial, when you've looked at it the day before, thought about your questions um, and then come to court fresh and ready to go, is completely different to when you've been arguing all morning about material that you're entitled to, then you eventually get it, then reading it and then essentially having to do the trial on the spot. Uh, you know, arguing around in circles on what should be a very obvious point that if you say someone hit you first and they say there's CCTV of it, um, you should have it. In some Crown Court trials, if you get given something on the day, everyone will go home until the following day so you can look at it. Um, obviously that's, you know, more, more complicated and higher stakes, but for that person who's on trial, it's just as important, especially when they're people of good character, you know, whether they're up for a driving offence or something more serious, it matters to them. And it's so difficult because I'll have clients say to me, you know, how can, how can they do this? How can they expect me to do my trial like this? Um, and I don't have a good answer for them. A lot of people that I've spoken to started speaking about um, sort of suicidal thoughts. And there was a, it does cross your mind. I'd be lying to you if I said it doesn't cross your mind. It, it does, um, because it's, 
what else can you do? Like, what else are you in control of other than that? When the rules and the frameworks are all there and it's simply being ignored and you're not being listened to, that's one of the worst feelings because you just feel completely powerless. Chapter four, moving forward. I'm Danielle Rees-Greenhalsh. I'm a defence solicitor at Corker Binning. After a number of cases collapsed, the Justice Select Committee began an inquiry into the disclosure of evidence in criminal cases. Danielle has made submissions to that inquiry. I sat down with her over a cup of coffee to discuss what needs to change. Very often what I've found is that there is a culture of is sort of target-driven. You know, they, they have an idea about how the case is. You know, they're the ones with the on-the-ground contact with the complainants and their families and their children, and they're right in the heart of the real emotional end of it. Um, quite often. So I wonder sometimes whether their, their view of an investigation and what reasonable lines of inquiry are, for example, I wonder if they're sometimes coloured by you know, their contact um, with, with that side of things. Um, sometimes I wish they were, had a defence hat that they could just sort of put on and, and sort of go back and think, how would this action be viewed by a defence lawyer? How would this be taken apart by a defence lawyer? Because then investigations would be stronger from the outset. So. Clearly the roles need to be separated. As Danielle says, combining the real emotional job of being the first contact with the complainant and the job of investigating or being the officer in charge of disclosure is incompatible and dangerous. But what about more funding? Just by way of an example, the Justice Department is facing real-term cuts of 40% across the period from 2010 to 2020. Everybody probably could do with more money. Everyone would do a much better job if, if money wasn't an issue. I think that is undoubtedly true. More resource would mean more time, more technology, more investment in training and you know, officers, all of this. Of course that's true. But I think it is, um, it's not acceptable to simply put it down to money. I think that is a, pardon the pun, get out of jail free card. Um, because ultimately we know that money isn't something that the police themselves can influence. That is a government issue and to just pass the book in that way um, doesn't get anybody anywhere. Um, so I think there are discussions, real discussions, that need to be had, putting the money issue to one side, real discussions about the culture, about um, the sort of way principles are applied, about the engagement with defence, about you know, rational views, about oversight, things like that. Things, like I said before, are already in place. They're already supposed to be in place. You know, your disclosure officer should not be the same officer as is ultimately in charge of the case and also the family liaison officer, which has happened frequently, you know, and I've spoken to many colleagues about this. You can't have a person with all of those three hats on because mistakes will be made, oversights will be made. Um, it's, that's just how it is. And that's not a money issue. <laughs> it's just allocation. In truth, it appears that the job of disclosure needs to be taken more seriously. I spoke to a police officer once and we, we got into this debate and this was a very experienced police officer up north and um, I said, you know, what are you actually taught about disclosure and things like that? And she, she sort of rolled her eyes at me and she said, you know what, you know when you have to go and do those health and safety briefings 
and you're like, you've got to go and you've got to say that you've done it, but like no one really wants to be there. That's what it's like. And that, I mean, that was about two years ago, so things might have changed, but it stuck with me because I thought, if that's how it's being viewed as a sort of thing you have to do, but we all know it doesn't really matter anyway, I mean, that has to be the starting point. It has to be a change in attitude. It has to be important to every individual police officer that they get this right, you know, because their duty is to the public. And the public doesn't just constitute people who are the victims of crime. The public includes people who may have committed crimes, who are accused of crimes and maybe haven't committed them. Somebody needs to bother. Somebody needs to actually turn around and be like, this is the evidence. Let me look at it. It might be exhausting, it might be tedious, you might not find anything. But your job is to do that, you know, everybody has a job, like part of their job that they hate. It's just your job. Liam came so close to wrongly spending the best years of his life in prison, just like Mike and the Cardiff News Agent 3 did. I started getting angry and that's when I started studying law and, uh, and educating myself and then sort of trying to make a difference in the case, you know what I mean, and trying to piece everything together. And that's when the fight, ba fight back began, which is about 90, 1990, 1991. Mike told me that he wrote 660 letters to MPs. He wrote to peers, he wrote to ITV, the BBC. Anyone he could think of, he wrote to. Things started to come together, and with the help of the Criminal Cases Review Commission, the Cardiff News Agent 3 were to have their case heard again at the Court of Appeal. That was the journey we took, and we got out on bail. i never forget, it was December the 21st, which is my daughter's birthday, four days before Christmas. I mean, what a present to have. 11 years late. 11 years late, but I could be with my son. 11 years and 43 days, I exactly done. That's what my solicitors worked out. A year later, Mike Ellis and Darren's convictions were overturned. But he was no longer the 19-year-old that was arrested all those years ago. Well, it put a, it put a lot of pressure on my marriage because I had, I had a, a child on the way and I already had a son called Kyle. So much so that my marriage actually split up before the trial. And it got even worse than that because my daughter died of a cot death while I was on remand waiting for the uh, waiting for the trial. So not only did I have to deal with a wrongful conviction, I had to deal with the fact I lost my wife and I lost my daughter to cot death. And I was just 19 years of age. It was too much for me. I was very angry. I had a lot of anger inside me and hatred for people, especially the police. I mean, I was so bitter about what had happened that uh, I, I later found out I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and I had to be put on medication because of the night terrors I, I, I had. And I still got to this day, you know, I remember people being murdered in prison, which is what I mentioned earlier on. I, I watched the one guy when they die in front of me. And I couldn't, you know, your gut instinct as a human being is to help another human being. And yet I had to watch this guy die and I couldn't do nothing. So all these things I had to adjust to, I had to adjust to having people around me. I found the traffic was too much for me. I went into uh, town just before Christmas, Christmas Eve, and I, I was pushing people out of the way and I had to get to the taxi rank to get in a taxi to get home because it was just too much. Uh, th too many things have changed. I mean, I went into the shop and asked for a packet of opal fruits and uh, a marathon, and they looked at me gone off. They said, where have you been? I said, you don't want to know.
This was a pilot episode of Unjust, created for the Justice Gap. Written and produced by me, Callum McRae, with help from Anders Palm Olison and Joe McRae. A special mention to David Hardstuff for his help with this project. Please let us know what you think by rating us and leaving feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts.